Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. I think that we're gonna learn a lot about startups in the Middle East. And then also there's gonna be quite a, a few exciting stories and near-death experiences for sure. So I guess without further ado, Idris Al Rifai, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Alejandro. Thanks for having me. So half French and half Iraq, Iraqi. So tell us the uh, tell us the combo there. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, my dad is uh, Iraqi, my mom is French. Uh, we left Iraq when I was actually like three years old, uh, went to France, and then basically like stayed there, you know, for most of my life. So yeah, born and raised, uh, I mean, yeah, oh, raised raised in France. Raised in France, in the south of France. And, and obviously you have a, you know, like the, typically I, I, I interview these founders that they are coming from, uh, right from consulting, or they're coming from, investment banking or venture capital. Here we have someone that was a former pro basketball player and then also went to the special forces. So what, what a crazy combination. So so tell us about these two experiences there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, a very, I would say a very untraditional background. Uh, so yeah, I started, um, I started in the Ministry of Defense for a couple of years, then went to the special forces uh, for three years. Uh, I've been deployed in 13 countries, uh, mostly all across Africa. Um, and uh, and then yeah, joined the personal staff uh, of the Minister of Defense. Uh, did my MBA after that, and then went to Dubai. I'm a, like you said, I'm a big basketball fan. I actually I was uh, um, I was a professional basketball player, but just professional to be like a bench warmer, you know, as we say. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I was sitting all the way at the end of the bench, but I could say I was pro. But yeah, it was it was uh, it was a fun time. But you know, this is when I realized that I could never make it to like the NBA or even like to the EuroLeague. So I'm like, okay, you know, I have to find something else. So that probably gave you the team effort, you know, mentality. And, and obviously that combined with the special forces. I mean, what a, what an incredible combination there. What, what were you doing in the, in the special forces? So it's very, um, so it's not like, a, it's nothing like in the movie, right? But it's very, um, it was, it was a lot of, I would say like intelligence, which basically it's a big word for saying just like being in the middle of, uh, random places and trying to understand what the hell is going on. Um, like you have to understand, and I, I'm sure like you're familiar, right? When you go to, uh, uh, when you hear about countries or a conflict, there is a lot of um, uh, very different uh, type of information um, and you don't know what's right or what's wrong. 
Um, and therefore, sometimes they do send missions, what we call fact-finding mission, to understand what the hell is going on. So we go there, I have like 20 bodyguards, and I talk to like 10 people a day. Uh, and then I write reports at night, don't sleep, and eat uh, whatever I can find uh, for like a few <laughs> a few months. So that's basically what it is, right? So it's a lot of uh, survival uh, more than than anything. Uh, but yeah, definitely well, no yeah. comfort. Definitely, uh, you know, be, being by yourself and and make it a success. You know, oh for sure. But I'm sure that you probably uh, have been able to learn a lot from that, especially now as a founder, because as a founder, it's all about survival and also all yeah. about being able to be with uncertainty. So what what 100%. did this experience, uh, let's say, taught you about you know uh, dealing with uncertainty? So yeah, I mean yeah, so. I think the biggest thing that I learned from this type of experience is, is um, because in a way, like special forces, unlike, you know, traditional uh, army, which is very hierarchical um, and very like everybody knows what it's supposed to do. Special forces is a, is a lot more of a, um, of a patchwork of people. So we're typically have teams from like different countries. They have different agenda. They're not here only for the mission, but they have their own, uh, they have their own mission inside the mission. So, so that's one, you have to really understand and, and get people on board. Uh, so that's one. Two, uh, and I found it very uh, interesting because you're, I'm the only officer and everybody is like, yeah, so it, it's not officer. But obviously they know a lot more about survival than I do, right? So it's very much like a startup where the CEO doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Then he's trying to surround himself with teams that know uh, what they're doing uh, you know, in their field. Uh, so it's about leading by empowering. This is what I would say. And this really, like, I would say, um, um, influenced, you know, my type of leadership with regards to, like, letting anyone run, run with it. And you just, you know, the job of the CEO at the end of the day is just to enable everyone within the organization and find money. And that's it. And that's it. Got it. Understood, understood. And then, obviously, you did your MBA. Then after that, you decided to go to Dubai. And then you did some consulting. And, and, I, and I really love uh, on consulting, like what that gives you, which is very much being able to break big problems into small problems and then tackle those. So I'm, I'm sure that this experience as a consultant taught you a lot. So, so what were some of the insights that you got from this experience? Yeah, no, very true. Uh, I think so one, I mean, obviously, so uh, personally, I needed some kind of stamp that this guy is not too weird and he can be corporate um, because obviously my background was like so diverse and, you know, like so weird. Um, so that was one, two, um, to go back to your point. Yeah. I think, um, you know, like breaking like big problems into small ones is one, uh, what I found, uh, that I used the most for my consulting, uh, skills in a way is, uh, story writing, right? So as a founder, you tell a lot of stories, um, to investors, to people you sell, to your first clients, to your first customers, uh, to people who want to leave their job, uh, to take a pay cut, to join you. So there is a lot of selling, uh, I think. So being able to put everything, you know, like into a story that is compelling, that convinces people, I think it's very important uh, to be a startup. Uh, I mean, it's very important skill set for a startup founder. And let me let me just expand on that. So what would you, and I completely agree with you, it's all about storytelling. But when it comes to storytelling, what would you say are the key ingredients that make a story, a story compelling? Oh, key ingredients. I mean, for, I mean, I think... First, you have to, there, there is quite a lot of emotional intelligence in it, right? So basically, the ability to see the situations not through your own eyes, but through the eyes of the people you're talking to. Um, so I think that's, that's very important. And I, need, I think that there is quite a lot that needs, 
people get drawn a, a little bit by uh, by passion. Um, I found it, and maybe I'm wrong, but that's just my take, right? Uh, one data point, I think, in, in all your interviews. But I think it's like passion draws passion. Um, um, and I think that people get convinced if you see passionate. So I think the, the passion that you can convey uh, throughout the message, which is both a combination of purely like excitement, but also I would say um, being very uh, structured in how you break down um, what your startup is trying to do uh, is very, very important when you try to pursue people. Got it. So then after consulting, you decided to join the world of startups. And that was with Marca. So, so how did this happen? Yeah, yeah, man. Like, so look, when I was, uh, when I was a consultant, so I liked it, but I didn't love it, right, to, say, to say the least. That was, <laughs> uh, that was okay. I knew I needed it. You know, it's the type of like medicine that you need to have uh, because you know you need that. When you play sport, it's like the time you go to the gym. Like nobody yeah. loves it, but you know, it's going to get you, it's going to make you a better player. So look, that was a bit like this. I knew I needed it um, uh, to polish a lot of my skills. Um, I was quite raw. Um, but then, yeah, I really wanted to join the startup world. When I was uh, doing the MBA, I met a couple of entrepreneurs. I did a couple of classes. I remember my best classes was like entrepreneur, entrepreneur selling, um, uh, like entrepreneurship strategy. Like some of these classes really were, were like, really like steered uh, quite a lot uh, inside uh, inside me. So I knew this is what I wanted. I was just waiting for the next, for the right opportunity. So look back then, I started talking to a VC. We're um, uh, actually from Hummingbird Venture, a great guy, Pamir. Um, and we started like literally bouncing off ideas on what should be the next startup. And then we we decided that, look, I mean, he told me like, look, there is this startup that we funded, uh, great guy, they're looking for, uh, for a COO, would you like to join? And I'm like, actually, you know, why not? And looking back at it, honestly, like for all the people that are listening that are, that want to jump, I think, and again, it's just my opinion, but I think it's great to start the entrepreneurship path by joining a scale-up. Because, I mean, at least for me, so maybe because I'm French or maybe it's just because me, right? But I thought like startups were so well-oiled, you know, like it was like a machine and they knew what they were doing and they were going like all in the right direction and it was working because they were stronger or faster, right? It's just not yeah. the case. It's like startups are fucked up inside. It's very difficult. <laughs> what, it, what, it, what, it, what is working one day will not work the second day. Nobody yeah. understands. I mean, I did not understand hypergrowth, right? Like, uh, you know, 40% monthly growth, right? So companies that literally like triple in size in four or five months. Um, like it's, 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 it's mind-numbling to see and to understand well, the fact that startups do not have everything figured out. And I thought for me, it, break, it, it really broke the myth. Um, and it was the, it was, I needed this to actually jump on my own, uh, looking back at it because, you know, like I realized that startups are not perfect and therefore I'm okay to do something imperfect. Got it. So then obviously now, you know, like you got this experience and, and you were here with Marka, yeah. uh, and basically gave you the, um, the insights, no, into what this hyper growth looks like and, you know, how to approach it and so forth. And then, you know, there was probably a time where you said, hey, now, now I think I got this. You know, now is my chance to shine. And here's the problem that I'm going to be tackling. You know, what, what was that like? <laughs> Honestly, it was not that positive. <laughs> 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 it's not like I woke up one day and I'm like, yeah, this is my chance. No, look, I uh, honestly, I started this company because I thought that nobody listened to me. And I'm not, you know, like, it's just like, 
you know, like I was one of the biggest clients of like the DHL of this one. And I'm not going to put name, but basically the regional DHL that we have in the Middle East. Uh, yeah. And they were just not even listening. You know, like uh, they, they didn't care. And I didn't, I could not walk away because they were the only game in town. So I was in a position where I'm being killed by a business, you know, by somebody who's supposed to help me. And that person, that company does not even care that he's killing me because he knows I'm, I don't have another option. And I found that like, like completely unfair. And I think this, this is the unfairness that actually drove me uh, to actually start. I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, you think like nobody's going to actually hurt you? Let, let me see what I can do. Um, so literally I started, I started this almost like because I was pissed off. Literally, I was pissed off on the fact that there was no solutions for anyone and nobody was building one. So I started it. So then what was that day where you said, okay, you know, I got to take being so pissed off internally and, and project this externally and, <laughs> and do something about it. So, so, so what happened there? I mean, first, I, I think, I mean, uh, you're probably, <laughs> you're an entrepreneur, Alejandro, as well. So I think um, the, good, the good thing about entrepreneurs is that they're a little bit cuckoo, right? They're really crazy. They really think that they can disrupt industries, even though what they have originally uh, is not disruptive. And uh, let me come back to this. I think there is quite a lot of like self-fulfilling prophecy uh, that goes into uh, building a startup. It's like you do understand the shortcomings of the market. You do understand the competition. So you have an edge here, but you have quite a lot of people that have the same knowledge, right? But what you tr like, it's your willingness to change things that self-fulfilled itself that actually makes you grow. So look where, when looking back at it, like, If I had somebody pitch me saying, okay, you're going to disrupt like literally like giants, multi-billion dollar like businesses that are, that are already present in 150 countries, I would have said, you're, you're, you're crazy, man. Like, I mean, you're nice, but you're crazy. But I think you need this um, uh, to be, uh, you know, to be able to, to, to get started on the business. Yeah. So then what was the, um, so then once you said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go about this, I'm going to do something about it. How did you go about, let's say, you know, like getting, you know, that founding team, you know, the the the, the people on board and, and and about the execution of of this, no? Yeah, yeah. So look, I um, so uh, there is two. I mean, two things at least. Right, at the beginning is is, is uh, people and money, right? Uh, so on the money side, I put like all my money in, like a like a, like a, all my money in family's money, you know, you know, like all my friends' money. But, you know, it's like. It's a crazy, crazy bet, but you know, like at the end of the day, you know, they, 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 they're following it. I personally think that he put actually a lot of pressure on me, but that's another problem. Uh, but anyway, so that's, that got sorted for a few months. Uh, and then people, you need, you know, it's funny how the type of skill set changes. Obviously, the type of people we're recruiting right now is completely different than the people we recruited early on, right? Early on, we wanted like the, like the perfect Swiss knife, right? The guy who works like 18 hours a day. We can be marketing in the in the morning and customer service in the afternoon and deliver packages in the evening. Uh, obviously, it's completely different uh, uh, after that. But you need people that are as driven as you, you know, who are almost like uh, possessed with the business. Yeah. Um, so I think I would trade 100% early stage uh, skill sets for passion. Okay, you need somebody who's passionate first. And then you'll see it fit, right? And that's the whole thing about, obviously, like the book, you know, like from good to great and that kind of stuff. Like uh, there, there is a couple of things that are not 100% correct. But what I love about it is just like the fact that you do not ask what you're going to do. You just get on the bus, right? Like that kind of stuff. And I think that if you're the driver of the bus, 
you do not care really how the piece is going to work together. You just need to recruit people that are extremely motivated, that are willing to go to work with you no matter what it takes. Yep. No, and I remember that book too. I mean, the as, as he says, uh, Jim Collins says on the book, it's all about having the right people seated on the right seats of the bus. And eventually, if that's the case, you will find your uh, direction towards success. So yeah, uh, I love that. And I think Elon Musk says something similar. It's just like when you're asked to be on a rocket ship, you don't ask which seat. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, and, it, it totally makes sense. And Idris, in, in your case, so what, what ended up being the business model so that the people that are listening get it? Oh uh, Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, look, um, if you look at uh, last money in emerging markets, to make it very simple, two key problems, right? It's not like in the West. Um, two things that you need to understand. One, there is no address. As crazy as it seems, whether you're talking about Dubai, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, Egypt, there is literally no address. So the way it works when you buy something online is that you literally describe your address in the address field, okay? Like uh, based, based on landmark, you know, you say, oh, the 7-Eleven on this area, second street on the right, third, third house is on the left. This is literally how uh, things are being delivered. And then you put your phone number and the driver calls you. So that's one, lack of address. Two, cash on delivery. 80% of transactions are cash and delivery. If you look at Jumia's filing for IPO, you can see that it's like even higher in most of the countries, 90, 92%. But if you look at emerging market as a whole, you're talking about 90% emerging market. So technically, so that's two. Three, you're talking about emerging markets where 80 or 90% of transactions happen on smartphone. Only 10 to 20% happen within, uh, on the desktop. So you have this landscape, okay? And this, despite, so like, that's what you have. And then you have the DHL, the FedEx. And again, I'm not blaming them, okay? Like, it's really not my game, okay? But you have the DHL and the FedEx of this world that's at checkout, ask for a delivery address, even though there is no address for 4 billion people in this world. So we thought that there was something that was disconnected from reality. So instead of that, we're just like, okay, I don't care about your address. Why do we care about address while actually Uber and whoever just ask for GPS? We do not care about what you live where you live, the only thing we care about is where you're going to be, where you want your package delivered. Obviously, it creates a lot of difficulties in the back end, making sure that the routing optimization is correct, making sure that you actually can find the customers. But this is my job, right? This is not the job of the customer. My job as a delivery company is not to pin down the customer for six hours to make sure that I can deliver his damn package so that he can actually get the COD, the cash and delivery, delivered. Right? So yeah. I think that the, 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 the equation was wrongly you know, like stated. So instead of that, we wanted to put the customer, you know, back into the driver's seat. We'll find you, just share your GPS. And then obviously the whole technology stack allows for that. And therefore we can find the customers a lot more uh, than what the FedEx and DHL of this world can. And therefore we serve e-commerce better. The non-delivery rate, which can be as high as 25% in some of the markets. So think about it. 25% of what of the transaction do not happen because I cannot find the customers, right? which is crazy. But for us, it's about four to five times lower in some of the markets. Okay, so basically, we enable e-commerce through last mile. That's what we do. And and in your case, you could also uh, you could also you 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 also didn't find a bank account. Yeah. What sure. happened there? Yeah, but that's for the company, right? That's for the company. Yeah, for the company, for the company. You also, you know, in your case, you know, talking about not, not being able to find stuff, you didn't, you, you couldn't find a, a bank account because here, you know, like obviously in the U.S. or, you know, everyone that is tuning in maybe from San Francisco or New York or whatever that is, you know, things are done a little bit different. Uh, so in your case, you know, like 
tell us about the experience with the bank account. What happened there, Idris? And and again, I'm not I'm not blaming. Even though, so like, look, I there is quite a lot of things that bank uh, could be doing, especially in the Middle East, since they're sitting on 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 tons of assets, on liquid assets. But that's another story. I'm happy to talk more about it. But look, from a bank perspective, I do understand because think about it. You have one guy that comes to your office one day, okay, like this young entrepreneur. I mean, young, not that young, but anyway. Uh, that entrepreneur that comes and I say, like, look, I want to open a bank account. And every day I'm going to bring a couple of hundred thousand dollars in cash. And I'm going to bring that cash to different accounts. I'm going to wire that domestically and internationally. <laughs> so I do understand how bank can be slightly <laughs> triggered by this. But this right. is just the reality. It also shows how disconnected they are with reality, right? So I went to six banks. I got six no's. And you have to understand, like, I started the business already without a bank account. Um, so when clients wanted to pay us, they actually, I had to give them my own personal bank account. So think about how I look now, you know, like going through this. So it was, yeah, just like stuff as opening a bank account was, 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 was very difficult uh, in Dubai. And then I managed through a connection of mine uh, actually to trust me that I was not doing anything shady. And then uh, we managed to open a bank account. So, but yeah, Very it was cool. difficult. Just like with rents, right? So tell us about the rents. What's going on with the rents? <laughs> yeah, rents. I mean, again, one of the things that is very uh, interested, uh, interesting in the Middle East, is, uh, and especially in Dubai, is that you have to pay your rent upfront for the full year. Uh, so it hurts quite a lot of your cash flow, right? So think about it. Um, you're, you just entered the office, and then you have, your first $200,000 in the bank, uh, you know, for pre-seed funding. And then you just realize that 30% actually is gone just based on your rent. And nothing fancy, just an office. Uh, and there is like, a, there is actually a, 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 some some uh, some rules with regards to how small your office can be. Um, and and 30% of your pre-seed funding is gone based on the rent. It's crazy, but you, you need to have that discussion with your investors, early stage investors, and tell them this is how it works. And you know it goes, yes. and it goes even like a, um, you know, like I was telling you earlier, you know, like where one of the crazy thing as well is that even when you grow the business, uh, like it makes no sense. So for example, we're in the free zone in Dubai, and then the number of visa. Obviously, you need a visa to come work, right? This is how the Middle East works. If you do not have a visa, you cannot you cannot be in the Middle East, let alone work. Um, so uh, for us to get visas, for us to be able to grow. Uh, we got refused, right? So we got re we, a couple of our visa got turned down, and then I went to the free zone and I said, like, why are you turning it down? And then they told me, like, look, the number of visas you can have is related to how big your office space is. And I'm like, dude, like, just think about my business, right? My business is career, right? I've got people in the cars delivering stuff. It's just, and and the guy understood, but he could not bend the rules like 100%, right? So it's just like, yeah, but it's out the rules. So we literally had to increase the size of the office for no reasons other than getting visas. Wow. And, and, and I'm not, look, I'm not saying, uh, and as you know, right, like uh, nothing is black and white. So I'm not saying like Dubai is the worst place to start a business because it's not. There's a couple of things that are right. But like these things makes no sense, right? You just realize that how can this make sense? Um, but yeah, this is how it is. Yeah, perhaps, you know, it was uh, something that, was applied to other businesses that were not necessarily hyper growth or yeah, or in your segment, but uh, but anyhow, I know that you know on the fundraising, you know it was a bit shaky for you guys. 
Uh, and I know that, you know, as you were saying, you know, on the seat round, you got the friends and family. So I'm sure that the holiday dinners, you know, turned a little bit to the valuation of the business. <laughs> but then on the on the Series A, that's when you guys, you know, finally open it up to 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 third, you know, to, to like sophisticated folks. And I know that, uh, you know, you had quite an interesting story there that happened with a VC last minute. So so tell us what happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, we're, again, like the, the VC ecosystem in Dubai is still in, in its early stage. And I think that compared to when I started the business about, so like seven years ago, I think quite a lot of change. But yeah, what happened seven years was like, was, was I mean, almost killed us, uh, literally. I remember having discussions with my uh, co-founder and, you know, my key people at the time. And, you know, we were crying, you know, like it was. So what happened is that, so look, uh, we did like a $1.2 million raise for a seed and we had about half of it that has uh, already hit the bank. Actually, it was already spent. Um, uh, and then we had this uh, VC from Dubai that came on board. And I said, like, look, I'm interested, but we need to renegotiate all the terms. So think about it. Now you have to, and obviously not in, not in my favor, right? It goes without saying. Uh, so lower pre-money valuation, different type of rights, class of shares, all of it. So anyway, we changed the whole share of the agreement, the whole term sheets, everything. Um, and then two days before the wiring, um, they decided to pull out. So not only not only I didn't have that money, that's one. Two, the whole round crumbled. So the other 400K that were syndicated, you know, around that lead investors obviously do not count on them. And obviously they all fell apart, 100%. But then you started, like, you go back to your earlier investor and say, oh, yeah, by the way, let's go back to the earlier terms, right? Which obviously is a very tough conversation to have. Uh, if not impossible. So like you, you it's, it's like it's the triple effect. <laughs> so what happens is that I had to go back to France. I had to ask for a loan, which I got. It was a crazy story, uh, by the way, just to get the loan. But anyway, so I had like, there was my second loan back in France and I put that back into the business so that we could survive two more months. Um, wow. You know, it was like close to Christmas and obviously I was stressed as hell um, uh, and we didn't have money to pay for the end of the month. It was the second month in a row. And, uh, and I remember, so my mom, uh, actually put her money and, you know, like she worked all her life and didn't, you know, didn't like, didn't, didn't, um, uh, you know, save a lot. I remember. So she put like, uh, 60% of her savings again, do not do that at home. Uh, but she put 60% of her savings, which was like 45,000 euros, uh, into the business so that I could survive one more month. It's still, as of today, still one of my biggest regrets. Cause I think that even though she, so now she exited, she made 12 X. Okay. It's good. But it does not mean that because the result is good, it doesn't mean that it was the right decision. You know, it's called survival bias. Um, so it was the wrong decision to take a money. And I can't, I can't even think about what would have happened if I, if I lost it. But anyway, so yeah, I took a money and then we survived another month. And then NEA came on board in Series A. And obviously, man, I'm still grateful with NEA. They were like Scott and all these guys. They were... They, they never invested in the business. They just believed in me, believed in the business. And I was like, yeah, you're going to figure it out. And man, I, kudos to these guys. And how, how do you get like, for example, like, um, like a VC that let's say is in the U.S. I mean, any top tier uh, VC here uh, and very, very respected. But I guess how do you come from, let's say from abroad, you know, from a completely, you know, unknown market uh, to them, yeah. perhaps because they didn't invest it. Maybe they were up to speed. They researched it and all of that good stuff. But it was the first investment. How do you really get them to trust you and to really build that type of uh, 
of of relationship to say, hey, you know what, we'll we'll, we'll make our first investment here. But this is, uh, I mean, this is first, this is extremely difficult, and two, um, so like, and and this is this is I've been I've been lucky, right? So how did, let's put the facts and then let's put let's put the eighty percent of luck that came into this, right? Because let's not pretend that everything is because of hard work. Um, but it's, it starts with this. Um, so look, I went to the I went to the valley uh, literally in a uh, in a in a in a I would say accelerator program. I went there. I met somebody who became my co-founder. Uh, her name is Joy. Uh, and then literally, so we pitched uh, NEA um, um, uh, together. And NEA was NEA was um, never invested in Middle East. And NEA like like any other investors, you know, let's not blame them, right? Like it's, they have so many opportunities, you know, like 100 meters from where they are or two kilometer radius of where they are. So what the hell would they invest in 17 hour flight, especially in like series A funding, right? So, but look, at the end of the day, um, it really, we hit it off. I hit it off with the whole partnership. I hit it off with Scott Sandel. I hit it off with like a couple of partners. And then they actually increased um, the, the maximum amount that they could invest in what they call, you know, like risky investment. So, they did it. They took the lead, and honestly, since then they've been like incredible, uh, like helper. Right? They've been helping me. Like they structured my Series A, they led my Series B, they led my convertible notes. I mean, they've been with me like since, uh, since, since, since we 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 crossed path. And then my second mistake was just I thought that having NEA would make everything easy. <laughs> Big mistake, man. Like uh, uh, none of the. I mean. The fact that I got NEA does not mean that I was not rejected 100 times from other VCs. All the other VCs rejected me, 100%, okay, including in the US, in Europe, and in the Middle East. Right? So the fact that we got like a couple of investors that came in shows it's, it's, one to, it's a 1 to 10 ratio, right, pretty much. So everybody is impressed by the people that, brought on, that, that I brought on board, but everybody should see the 90% of the others that actually refused. I hear you. I hear you. And obviously, uh, here in this case, you guys raised close to a hundred million, uh, and obviously, you guys are on on a really incredible path. How big? How big is the uh, business for the people that are listening to get a sense of of you know the the size of? I mean, look, we're we're um, we grew 105 times in the past uh, in the past two and a half years. Um, we're about we're close to 5,000 employees, slightly over 4,000, 4,700, I think, the last count. Um, and we did close to a billion dollar GMV, uh, slightly higher last year. That's amazing. That's amazing. And and I guess uh, you know one of the questions that I that I that I typically ask is, uh, let's say you go to sleep tonight, Idris, and you wake up in five years. So it's been a long snooze, imagine. <laughs> and then all of I a sudden wait. in five years, <laughs> and then all of a sudden in five years when you wake up, you wake up in a world where the uh, vision. Of feature is completely realized. What does that world look like? Uh, it's a world where addresses are irrelevant. Okay. Would you mind expanding think, on that? Yeah. Just, just think about it, right? Again, like I mean, for all the people like in in the valley or in the US, you know, like you have to understand that four billion people do not have addresses. So, like, think about it. And then they buy something online, and the first thing they have to fill up is the address. It's just not made for that. Literally. Uh, I mean, it's like you're trying to buy shoes and you can only buy a pair of one shoe, right? Like, it's just, it does not make sense. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the reality of the world, right? So, like, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make um, address, the requirement for an address for e-commerce delivery, 
not only unnecessary, but irrelevant, solving, thereby solving the no-address problem and the mobility issue, right? Because at the end of the day, even in the West, why can't you receive a package if you're at Starbucks, right, for two hours or, you know, like any, any place, right? Why is it, why the logistics company actually have to go with a physical address that does not move while Uber finds you wherever you are? I think there is something fundamentally wrong about it. And I think that probably our kids um, or, you know, our kids of our kids, I don't know, uh, will, 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 will smile at the idea that package had to be delivered to an address rather to where they are now, because this is where I want it. Yeah, no, I hear you. Absolutely. And, and obviously now, you know, like you've been at it for quite a while. I mean, you guys say started in 2012. So a lot of stories, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of successes, a lot of, you know, also, you know, breakdowns that led to breakthroughs as we've covered. Uh, but I guess if you had the opportunity to go back in time, uh, Idris, and have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Idris that was about to make the, uh, the jump from, from that markup uh, startup that you were working at to really build your own. If you had that chance to have that conversation and give yourself that younger Idris one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, knowing what you know now? Oh, man. I mean, I would have a serious discussion about whether you should start it. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's first, man. Like, it, it takes a toll on... So, I don't know, maybe because I'm passionate or maybe because I'm, I'm like who I am. And I, when I'm, I'm in something, I'm 100% in it. But, man, I remember, I remember the days where I was, when I was just tired of, like, um, you know, people just see me as the company and do not even see me as the person. Like, 90% of the people, 90, 95% of the people you meet they do not meet you, they meet the CEO of Fetcher, right? And it's just like how you started disappearing and how like everything gets absorbed in your startup. Like you can always see the good side of it, you know, and often it's depicted as such, right? Like uh, you need to be passionate, blah, blah, blah. You, you leave your dream. If you look at even the words of Musk, right? Like the guys work like 18 hours a day, seven days a week, right? At the end of the day, it means that you have no other life than this, right? So are you really ready for this, right? Um, are you ready to put like everything, you know, like on, on, you know, everything at stake? Are you ready to, are you ready to fail? Because most likely you are going to fail, you know, like, and there is like studies about this, right? That, that actually, if you look at probability and, you know, deferred income and all of this, you actually probably, you're, you're going to make more money if you stay in consulting or definitely if you stay in banking, if you go in consulting. So do not go into startup if, if you think about if, if, if what's driving you is just like you want to become your like millionaire, right? So it's just, it just makes no sense. So I think there is, we were, we built so much, uh, so much of a, of a, of a story around entrepreneurship because of movies and because we only want to know about the guys that have been successful that we tend to forget the hundred or the 99 people who have not been successful or the guys that have been successful now, but have failed so many times. And I think, if I had to give an advice to myself, I would say like, like do read some horror stories because this is the most likely scenario. I love it. I love it. So Idris, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? <laughs> um, um, I mean, my, yeah, you can reach me by, through, uh, through uh, Twitter or, yeah, so I'm on uh, Idris underscore Arifai, um, A-L-R-I-F-A-I at Twitter. And yeah, and you can find me otherwise on Fetcher. There is my email address anywhere. 
Amazing. Well, Idris, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thanks a lot, Alejandro. Pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.